0: what when the de has been church it is so great to see you oh how I have missed you over these last few months uh, I was supposed as many of you know I was supposed to be with you last weekend but I re-injured my right eye I re-injured my right, right eye see you back in February I injured it for the first time my doctor said what I got this last week was a, a recurrent uh, cornea erosion that can't be good well back in February uh, I was out golfing with my son and, um, and, and I went into a gully to find uh, lost golf balls because um, I'm too cheap to buy new ones and I had thrown up about 60 golf balls I kid you not and I was coming out of the gully and right as I was getting ready to come back up onto the green there was this uh, patch of Texas muley grass and buried in it was a brand-new Titleist pro v1 golf ball now if you don't golf you have no idea How sexy what I just said <laughs> you have no idea and I reached down to get that ball and one of those um, stiff dry muley grasses went underneath my glasses and scraped my cornea and it was a real tough go at it Um, The cost of the golf ball brand new three dollars the cost of the medical bills to fix my eye $300 You would think by now. I'd learn my lesson, right? Uh, Yes, I have now. I send my son into the gully to get the golf balls (laughs) Apparently my doctor tells me the cause for this recurrence this reopening of the injury is because my eyes no longer produce enough tears and I have to tell you if someone had told me years ago that you could run out I would have paced myself a little bit better but raising four kids and after 20 years of being a minister and being married to a spicy Italian woman for 30 years has given me great cause to shed some tears and apparently I have used a lifetime quota and I'm done I want to thank Miguel Ferria a minister on the West Side Campus for filling in for me last minute He did an awesome job, but I heard that he took the liberty to tease me. And I want to declare publicly to Miguel that that really hurt my feelings. And I am crying on the inside, but I have no tears to show it on the outside. But believe me, don't let that make you think I'm not deeply wounded. Speaking of tears, we're going to need a lot of them for the mission that God has us on. We are the body of Christ called to be Jesus in every neighborhood in San Antonio and beyond. If we have the courage to actually leave the comfort of this building and to take our faith to the streets, to the neighborhoods, to the schools, to the apartments, to the places that we work, it will cause our eyes to well up with tears. Why? Because behind every door is a story story. And if you take the time to get to know the story behind each door, you will likely see something you never wished you had seen. You'll see hurt, you'll see pain, you'll see dysfunction, and in many cases, you'll see utter hopelessness. That's why it takes courage. But you don't have to go into the neighborhoods in our city to find that. The person to the right or to the left of you if truth were known, is dealing with their own bout of hurt and pain and dysfunction and even hopelessness. We come into a place like this for an hour, we get dressed up and we can kind of hold it all together for that hour. But if someone were to dare to follow us out of this building to the story behind our door, they would learn that in our lives there's some kind of pain that is going on that causes our eyes to well up with tears. But this is precisely the place that God is calling his church. Not only the Oak Hills Church, but the church worldwide. We read it in the scriptures over and over again, and we know where we're going. We know where we're going, but now God wants to remind us that how we get to where he wants us to go really matters. He wants us to point our lives and our family and our church in the right direction, but now he wants to to remind us that the journey that we take to get there is as important as arriving at the destination in God's economy. We call them values, living values that guide our day-to-day journey toward the direction that God wants us to go. And so over the next seven weeks, we want to introduce you to seven rock-solid values that guide us in our journey in the direction that God is taking us. And last week, Miguel introduced us to the first one, and that is unity. The idea is simple. We need to walk arm-in-arm in our journey, in our lives, in our families, in our church, toward the direction that God is calling us. We can't just have mission statements well defined and put them on fancy bracelets and be able to recite it. We actually have to take the journey together, unified. Jesus said it best, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he's saying to us, he's shouting to us in our family lives, that if your family is not moving in the same direction, unified, your family's not working your house will be divided. And the same is true within the church. So I want to move on to the second value and introduce it to you. There are three words. uh, Grace, truth, faith. Grace, truth, and faith. Say it with me. Grace, truth, and faith. Now I'm going to spend most of my time today talking about this tension between grace and truth, but I want to make a comment about this idea or value of faith. By faith here as a value, I'm referring to us being called to be spirit-filled risk-takers. If you were sitting at the poker table, Jesus would say, I want you to go all in. I want, to put all, I want you to put all your chips on me. And for most of us, we're not risk-takers. We'd say, oh, that's a big gamble. We could lose it all. And Jesus said, I know, it's right. But that's how I want you to follow me, all in. And we need to be those kinds of spirit-filled risk Now with that said, I'd like you to take your Bibles And I'd like you to open up to the Gospel of John chapter 8 And I'd like to show you what I believe is one of the most beautiful demonstrations Of this idea and tension between grace and truth And whenever you have a perfect illustration Guess who's the one living it out? Jesus John chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 1 But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery they made her stand before the group and Jesus and said to Jesus teacher this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman now What do you say? The scene is pretty straightforward, isn't it? They're asking Jesus to verify the law of God. They're asking Jesus to identify the rules and the truth. Now, seeking the truth is a good thing, right? You're in church. Seeking the truth is a good thing, right? Yes. (laughs) Maybe we need to go back a little bit. Seeking the truth is a good thing, right? There you go. So the question remains, does the Old Testament contain such a law? That's what they asked Jesus. And in fact, it does in two places. Let me read just one of them to you. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. Now as you look at this verse, I want you to look at it carefully because I want to follow it up with a question. Here's how it reads in the law. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death now let me ask you a question do you see anything missing between this text in Leviticus and the story that's unfolding in John chapter eight or should I say do you see any one missing where's the man in this story and every time I read this, it just It bugs me that these Pharisees, that these teachers of the law, had the audacity to only bring the woman before Jesus when it clearly says that both the man and the woman are to stand before the council. These are hypocrites, and I'm surprised at first that Jesus doesn't point out the obvious, but he doesn't because he has seen into their hearts to the real motive as to why they are bringing this case to him. Keep reading with me in verse 6 they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him I find it ironic don't you that they were lying about wanting to know the truth does that catch you funny like it does me they were lying about wanting to know the truth so here's what Jesus does look at the rest of verse 6 but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, in the dust, in the sand. The question is, what is Jesus doing? Well, there is a very well-known and important book amongst the Jews called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a book that has recorded the oral traditions of the rabbis and the religious leaders to record how they are to pass judgment on to somebody else in accordance with the Old Testament law. That's what the Mishnah is is all about and the Mishnah tells us that whenever someone was caught in the act of adultery the man and the woman were brought before the Sanhedrin the council to judge and if it was proven that in fact they were adulterers because evidence witnesses were presented before the Sanhedrin then the priest would ceremonially bow down and he would write that Old Testament law in the dust or in the sand and then when he was done he would inscribe in the sand the names of the accused it is likely that this is exactly what Jesus is doing that he is maybe taking and he is writing in the sand Leviticus chapter 20 in verse 10 and the religious leaders are smiling Jesus is playing in to their ploy He's also indicating to them that he is someone who knows the law. (laughs) He's the one who gave it to Moses. And then maybe he is putting with his finger the name of the woman next to Leviticus 20.10. But keep reading. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now what is he doing? What is he writing in the sand now? None of us knows, but every time a person gets an opportunity to speak on this passage, they always speculate. Why should I be any different? I speculate. Here's my thought. If you go back four chapters in the Gospel of John, you will see that Jesus has an encounter with a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. Never met her before, and they engage in a conversation. And pretty early on in the conversation, Jesus exposes without prior knowledge that she's been married five times and the man she's currently living with is not her own husband. (laughs) It's a great advantage in being God. Because you can peer into our individual stories and know truly what's going on in our lives. I speculate that maybe he started writing the name of the man next to her's, next to Leviticus 20.10, and it began to unnerve the teachers of the law that he knew the name of the man. Then maybe he began to etch in the sand their dirty little secrets that they didn't think anybody knew and he was identifying Old Testament scriptures and then maybe scribbling their names in the sand I say that because when it dawns on them what he's doing they begin to split they drop their rocks and leave look at verse 9 at this those who heard began to go away one at a time the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there I love how the story finishes. Jesus straightens up and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Now let these next words pierce your soul. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. What did Jesus do here? What did Jesus do here? He did what he intended to do from the moment he stepped on the earth. If you have your Bible, turn back to John chapter 1, same book, just a few chapters earlier, to chapter 1, and I want you to look at verse 14. John writes this about Jesus. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, now look at it, full of grace and truth. I love the way the message translation puts the first part of verse 14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. Jesus walked into the world, into our neighbors, and he sought us out, knocked on our door with the desire to sit down with us and share a meal with us and to truly get to know our story. And it tells us that his backpack is filled with grace and truth. And so this is what he offered up to the woman. And John said, Seeing grace and truth embodied in the same person is a glorious thing to behold. Because it's an art. Some are good at dispensing truth. Others are good at offering grace. But oh, to put the two together, that's something that you learn by the teaching of God. I want you to note in John chapter 8 that he never said to the woman that what she did was right did you notice that he never said what she did was right as a matter of fact to her face he called what she did say it with me a sin yet at the same time he offered her unbelievable and freeing grace listen carefully grace does not seek to downplay the truth it does not shove wrong under the rug and opt for tolerance. It does not say, well, whatever truth works for you. It doesn't do that. Truth is truth. And we need to have the courage as followers of Christ to stand for the truth. Jesus never invites us to back down from the truth. And we have gotten our personal lives and our families and even our nation into a heap of trouble because we will not face the truth. There's a Chinese proverb that goes this way, the beginning of wisdom is to call something by its right name. The beginning of wisdom is to call something by its right name. We can apply this to many situations. Take a marriage. One of the problems that many marriages have right now is they keep calling what they have a marriage, but it stopped being a marriage a long time ago. If you were to really be truthful about what it is, it is a pitiful, dysfunctional relationship that's not only hurting each other, but hurting the sphere of people right around you. Until both of you have the courage to call it by its right name, you won't seek out help, so that maybe one day, in fact, you can have a marriage. Does that make sense? I believe that I speak the truth when I say that abortion is wrong. I believe I speak the truth when I say that a man and a woman is what constitutes a marriage, period. I believe I speak the truth when I say sex outside of marriage is wrong. I believe I speak the truth when I say getting drunk or getting high is wrong, losing control. I believe I speak the truth when I say the Ten Commandments are right, not just helpful suggestions. I believe I speak the truth when I say that Jesus is not a way. Jesus is the way. I believe I speak the truth. Jesus never asked us to back down from the truth. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. We are to stand for the truth. But now that you have embraced that, let me say on the flip side, he never has invited us to act like idiots with the truth, like the Pharisees were doing. You may not know this, because I do not honestly believe it is true of the Oak Hills family. But in our city, in our nation, and around the world, Christians are known to be some of the meanest people on the planet. Do you know that? Maybe you haven't been around enough to watch, or to see, or to listen. But we as a whole group have a reputation of being some of the orneriest gossipers alive some of the most judgmental people. Here's something else I know to be true. I believe I speak the truth when I say it's wrong to be mean. And you could put mean in that same list of the biggies I just mentioned, and that sin will keep you as separated from God without Christ as any one of those other things. A verse could be scribbled in the sand that tells us so, and right next to it, Jesus could scribble the name of many Christians who have violated this very principle. I thought about why do people do this? Why do people eat up so much of their time being mean and talking bad about other people? I'm not saying that's just them. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'll look in the mirror. Why do we do it? I believe that people like to huddle in little homogeneous groups and call out the wrongs of other people because it makes them feel better about themselves. But is there any one of us who would like Jesus to hang out with our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and then kneel down and start writing in the sand our shortcomings and sins, the ones that we thought we kept concealed? We may not have had an abortion. We may not have been tempted toward homosexuality, But we struggle in such vile ways with jealousy and anger toward people we say we love and gossip toward people behind their back that if they they knew what we were saying, it would devastate them only to discover, folks, that most of them do find out eventually but never tell you, and the relationship is destroyed. We can't help ourselves. And if the truth were known, it's not just the woman caught in adultery that needs a little bit of grace, but we do too. Is there anyone listening to these words that really wants God to deal with them completely on the basis of truth? Any takers? Anybody who wants God to deal with them completely on the basis of truth? No, we want a little grace. No, a lot of grace thrown in. Jesus invites us to call truth, truth but at the same time offer grace. And that's something that you learn as you mature in Christ and are humbled by the reality of your own sin. Ephesians chapter 4 says it this way, we are to learn to speak the truth, say it with me, in, in love. This is what he did for the woman and this is what he has done for us, folks. And so now we are to turn around based on what Christ has done for us and offer up grace and truth to the people in our lives. And listen carefully. When we do, it has a powerful effect on their lives. Probably one of the most potent examples of this uh, came years ago when Roseanne and I scraped up enough money as a young couple to go to England and we scraped up enough money to go see a play in the London theater called Les Miserables. I'd never read Victor Hugel's book about the revolution, so I walked into the theater and this play was unfolding fresh before my eyes. I had no idea what was coming. The main character is a man named Jean Valjean. He had just been released from prison serving a 19-year sentence of hard labor for stealing a piece of bread because he was hungry. and He is to make his way now that he's on parole to another town to check in and if he fails to check in he will be faced with life in prison. On his journey to that town he comes upon another small town hoping to find a meal and a place to sleep. But who's going to open up their door and risk their family for a convict. Apparently no one. Until he knocks on the last door of the bishop. And the bishop lets him in. I want you to turn your attention to the screen and see one of the most incredible displays of grace.
1: A bed to sleep in. A real bed. And in the morning, I'll be a new man. Is anybody there? Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you.
0: of grace became a turning point in the life of Jean Valjean to a new life. He moved to a little town and took on a menial job and worked an honest day. And little by little through his hard work, he eventually became the owner of the local factory that employed most of the people in this town. And later in the story, he turned over the ownership to the employees, getting nothing in return. He became the mayor of the town and he led that town on the basis of truth and justice and morality. He believed in truth. He believed in doing the right thing. But unknowingly, through the advice of one of his managers, he fired a poor worker in his factory when it was discovered that she had a baby out of wedlock. Later on in the story, Jean Valjean realizes that this decision caused her to turn to prostitution to provide a way to make money to send to the people who were caring for her daughter Cosette so she could buy medicine. When he discovered this, he made it right. And he took this poor prostitute into his home and tried to nurse her back to health with all he had, but he couldn't do it. She was too far gone, too sick. And when she died, he promised that he would take care of Cosette for the rest of her life. And he sought her down and he cares for her as the story unfolds in the most loving, incredible way. Even to the point of being willing to sacrifice his life for her, for the young man she falls in love with, and for the cause of the French Revolution. All because a bishop took a risk and offered him a dose of grace. Interesting in the story, the main villain is a guy named Inspector Chavert. And if you watch this, Chavert is a guy who leads his life on the basis of truth and truth alone. He holds on to it, but when he runs up against a couple of bouts of grace offered up to him by Jean Valjean, he can't handle it. It is so potent, it is so powerful that he takes his own life. All because a bishop took the risk and offered up grace to a convict. As we, by faith, take the risk to get to know the people in our neighborhoods, in schools, in our apartments, in places of work, to be Jesus to them, we are going to see things that will bring tears to our eyes. But we should not turn away from them in disgust and judgment, nor should we deny the truth that would be helpful to no one Rather, we have a value from the Scriptures taught to us by the very life of Jesus that we stand for the truth, but we offer grace. We stand for the truth, but we offer grace. Do you agree with that? Say it with me. We stand for the truth, but we offer grace. Let us be known as a people, as a congregation, who does just that. And if we do, We will be known to be people who are like Jesus. And all the church said,